Good morning. It's a beautiful day outside, and I'm so grateful that you chose to be here with us. We, uh, we have an eventful day uh, planned. We're going to have lunch immediately following church today. We'd love for you to stay. If you didn't bring an item, run to your favorite grocery store, go pick something up, and uh, come back. We'll start around 1145, 12 o'clock today. We've got quite a few churches that are joining us. Renewals coming to eat with us. Fillmore Avenue Community Church is coming. North Buffalo Community Church is coming. So it's going to be a great day uh, to celebrate and to eat. And then at 2 o'clock we get to celebrate the life and impact of a dear brother and an elder here at this church for many years, Bill Hamlin. Bill, um, I had the pleasure of, uh, of him being on the elder board that, uh, that hired me and just developed a, a deep love and respect for Bill. And, uh, and I know his family's looking forward to you being out here today at 2 p.m. And then following that memorial service, we're going to have some snacks and desserts in the fellowship hall after. So um, love for you to attend all of that. And then we get the most eventful text possibly in the Bible. We get um, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. So you better buckle up your seatbelt and I'll pray for us one more time. Lord Jesus, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wonders of your mighty word. I pray that we know that we need your Holy Spirit to work, that we would hear, that we would receive, that we would obey, and that you would have your way with us. Because this is a challenging text, and I pray that it would impact us and hit each one of us rightly. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So it's a crazy text, and I say crazy because there's so much going on. You've got Christians in lawsuits with one another, Christians in conflict. You've got a guy having an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. You've got all kinds of insanity going on in this text. And, and it's only appropriate that last night was just as insane for me. So at about 10 o'clock, okay, so this is just a little snapshot. I could not breathe. I was coughing so much. Some virus from some awful place came through the home. I'm the last one to get it. So I was like, all right, I got to go to the doctor and get a shot because this is killing me. So I get a shot of steroids. And, of course, that geeks you out so you don't sleep that much. So that's a disclaimer for anything said today from this point forward. And uh, so at about 7 a.m., I hear, no, Toby, and that's the cat that kills everything in the neighborhood, even dogs, right? So no, Toby, stop. That's Kennedy at the front door. And I was like, what is it? And she's like, come, come quick. So I thought Toby was like in the street because this cat is crazy. He sleeps all day and he parties and hunts all night. So like there's no litter box, literally 5 p.m. we say see ya, and we see him the next day at around 8 a.m. He just leaves and he comes back. And, uh, and I was like, what is it? I run down, and he's got this huge rabbit in his mouth. And I was like, this is the second one this week. And Kennedy, did I tell you? Kennedy loves rabbits. So she's in tears. She's hysterical. And she's like, you know, elevated tone in typical LaRavia fashion. She's like, Dad, stop screaming. I'm like, Kennedy, you're screaming. You're passionate. It's okay. Just what's going on? The rabbit, the rabbit. And the rabbit's squealing. Okay, for all those that are squeamish, I apologize. So I go and run. I grab the rabbit. I grab the cat. I throw the cat inside. And the Rabbit has seen better days. We'll leave it like that. But the rabbit's still hung, hanging on by a deer thread, right? So I take the rabbit and I go set it in the bushes. Well, this is hard for a country boy because that's dinner in some places, right? I mean, people pay animals to bring food to your doorstep, right? I mean, this is front door delivery. But my eight-year-old highly emotionally charged daughter would, I mean, she, every hunting season, dad, you can kill anything you want but a nice rabbit, I'm like, all right, anything but a rabbit. Jackson, don't tell her. And, uh, and so she's like, all right, Dad, I've got this new solution. 
I'm going to learn cat language, and I'm going to tell him that you cannot kill rabbits. You can only kill rats and squirrels. I was like, why squirrels, Kennedy? Oh, well, they're kin to rats. I was like, all right, that's good. Only rats and squirrels. So it's, it's been a little crazy so far in today's text. I don't think uh, will disappoint as well. He, we saw last week in chapter 4 where his heart was so strong for them to live up and to live in the reality of who they are in Christ Jesus. And this appeal to unity, this appeal to identity, this appeal, this is who we are in Christ. This is how, he's li- this is how he has wired us in our hard line, and we need to walk in line with our true design. We are children of the Most High King. We are sons of God, we are daughters of the Most High, the challenge is for our identity to match our behavior, for our doctrine to match our duty. That's the challenge. Well, that's the theme that we see once again. The Corinthian believers had been saved out of a pagan and moral culture. They needed to break from their past and live knowing that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that they don't have to do the things that they used to do because they're no longer the people that they used to be. They're new creations. That comes from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And remember, not to confuse you, but this technically is not 1 Corinthians. This is 2 Corinthians. There was a previous letter that we don't have. God didn't, seem fit, uh, didn't see fit for us to have it. But we know there was a previous letter because numerous times in 1 Corinthians, he references the previous letter. And then in 2 Corinthians, he quotes another pre- a letter. So we know that there was at least four letters to this church. Like that's like setting a record. That's how much they needed the Apostles Paul's love and challenge and admonition towards them. And he comes out firing in verse 1 of chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, he doesn't say a man has his mother, okay? He says a man has his father's wife. Okay, there's a couple different ways that you can, that you can parse that, but the, kind of the majority opinion on this is that the father remarried, so this is a stepmother, and this guy that claims to be a believer is sleeping with her, is having intimate relations, okay? That's, and, and it's an immorality among you, of a kind that is not even tolerated amongst the pagans. And Paul's like, man, you would be shamed. The own culture that rejects Christ would reject this. What's going on? And you are arrogant. That's not a period or a comma. That's just an exclamation point. He's like, and you're arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says this because they're not dealing with it. They're sweeping it under the carpet. Because we as human beings, so oftentimes we love the path of least resistance. We don't want to have conflict. We don't want to address the elephant in the room. Let's just keep, you know, going on, living our life like it's okay that he's sleeping with his stepmother. And he's like, you're arrogant. You're prideful. What are you doing? You're sweeping this under the carpet. You should be broken over this. You should mourn over this. Instead, you're acting like it doesn't even exist. Let him who has done this be removed. What does that mean? He shouldn't be treated as a brother. He's not acting like a brother. He's not acting like a believer. He now, and this is important. He may be a believer. He may be her brother. But with this type of gross immorality that is unrepented, you're going to hear this phrase over and over again, a habitual, unrepented lifestyle of sin. 
a habitual, unrepented, unconfessed lifestyle. Paul deal is, Paul's deal is this. David was a sinner, but when David was exposed to his sin, what did he do? He repented. He confessed. There was not an there was not a consistent lifestyle of unconfessed, habitual, repetitive sin. Now, if someone's having the same struggle, but they're battling, that's much different than someone that says, no, I'm fine. This is normal. I'm sleeping with my stepmom. What's your problem? Paul says, don't treat him like a believer because he's not acting like one. Now, he may be a believer, but we're to treat him like an unbeliever. And how do we treat unbelievers? We hate them and castigate them. No, we love them and we pray for them. So actually, there's never to be torment in the relationship. There's just not like, oh, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to call you brother and act like everything's okay when everything's not okay. But I'll love you and pray for you because that's how Jesus treated prostitutes and tax collectors. So it's not like we're going to give you the mark of death and put the scarlet letter on you. That's unbiblical. We're going to treat you like you need Jesus because you're acting like and living like you need Jesus. Because there's a lifestyle of repetitive unconfessed sin. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So he's saying, I've pronounced judgment. And remember last week we learned about two types of judgment. There's a judgment of condemnation and a judgment of restoration. The judgment that Paul's pronouncing, we're going to see as a judgment of restoration. Only God does a judgment of condemnation. We are in no position ever to stand as judge and jury over any man, over any woman, because we all have feet made of clay. We all are sinful. We're all saved by grace. Billy Graham and Dawson Trotman and Bill Bright and Josh LaRavia and Dan Miller and Marilyn Urschel, we're all getting into heaven by the same grace, by the same covering and sacrifice of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. So we can't stand in judgment. Paul's standing in judgment of restoration, not in a judgment of condemnation. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present. So he's like, my spirit is that I've spoken. You have the holy words. And with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this is maybe one of the most difficult texts to translate and to interpret in all of the New Testament. And why do I say that? Well, I got my degree in, in Greek and Hebrew, almost 100 hours at New Orleans, and this was the only B that I ever got in any class. And I was pretty busted about it, right? So I took the position on this verse that hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh was... The flesh there was talking about a sinful nature because flesh, the Greek word, is sarks. The word is used, two, it has a range of meaning of two different translations. It can mean physical body, the flesh of mortality, or it can mean that old sinful man. So if you read Romans 6, when he talks about his flesh there, what is he talking about? He's talking about his sinful nature there. But here in this context, he's talking about the man's physical body. And I took the position that he was talking about the man's sinful nature. So let me read it that way. Deliver this man over to Satan. And that does not mean he's Satan's because we see that he, the hope is that he would be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul doesn't know his eternal destiny. Only God knows. But if you, if you translate it the way that I did, which was wrong. I'll tip my hand. I got the B and I'm not bitter. I'm just telling you. You are to deliver this man to Satan. No, there was no C's, D's, or F's either, just to clarify. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his sinful nature so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. 
the problem with the position that I took is that it doesn't line up with 1 John 5, where it says, have the elders pray for those that are sick, if there was any sin in them, that they would maybe be healed. It doesn't line up with countless Old Testament references where people, God used sickness like in Nebuchadnezzar and others to get their attention. Now there's a danger here, danger, alert, danger, like with Job, that's a counterposition. You've got to be careful because when Job had trials and affliction, people said it's because of sin. And God said, no, this is a test. So there's two types of trials. There's two types of judgment, right? Review test. Judgment of condemnation, judgment of restoration. There's two types of trials. There's trials of life and there's trials of correction. Trials of life are like fleas and ticks on a dog. They don't discriminate. It's like root canals. They don't discriminate. You get them because you are human. When the hurricanes come, when the blizzards come, when the October storm comes, it doesn't discriminate. When the earthquake hits, it do- that's a trial of life that affects everyone in its path. But a trial of correction And we see this in Peter. We see this all throughout Scripture with disciples, with children of God, that those whom he he loved, he chastens. He will ratchet up circumstances in their life to get the ultimate end goal, which is his glory in our refinement. John 15, Jesus talks about pruning. Jesus talks about our refinement because he loves us so that we'll bear more fruit. You're like, man, this seems harsh. Is this God up in heaven throwing down lightning bolts? No, this is Hebrews chapter 12. We had a great Route 55 Bible study on Wednesday looking at that very challenging text saying, no, God chastens those that he loves and he disciplines us because he loves us. And What is said here is that it is physical. Hand him over for the destruction of his physical body so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And that's appropriate. How do I know that I was wrong? Well, because I got to be and my professor's like the smartest person in the world. Um, No, he's written like 30 commentaries, seriously. And when he sat down with me to explain it, he's like, look at how the juxtaposition of his physical body to his spirit is right there. The body will be broken down, but the goal is that his spirit will be saved. And that, that is very much in line with what Paul is saying. It's very much in line with New Testament. It's very much in line with the whole counsel of God. Now, you've got to be careful that anytime you get sickness or a cancer, God's angry with me. That's the caveat. Of, or, I'm sorry, I said 1 John 5 earlier. That's James chapter 5. That's the caveat of James, and we'll turn there just so you can read it, um, and I'll reference it. And so that it says, have the elders pray for you so that if there is sin, you would be healed. That does not mean that all sin is like that. That's James chapter 5, and you can read um, after 13, where it says in 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So if your sickness is a result of sin, and that can be for God to get your attention. But see, that could be natural consequences too. If you're, if you're not so intelligent and you eat 50 Big Macs a day, then there could be a result consequence because of that. If you smoke and drink and abuse things that are vice, then there could be a natural consequence. If you drink and drive, 
Does that mean that God doesn't forgive you if you get a DUI? No, but there's consequences in this world. So what James in chapter 5 is saying is, have the prayer of faith so that you'll be forgiven. And if it's, that sickness is related to sin, you'll be healed. But if it's not, then it's just a natural trial of life. Now that's important that we wrestle with that because Job wrestled with that. Joseph wrestled with that. Do you think Joseph was wrestling with his arrogance and pride? He was arrogant and proud, and, and proud when he went to his brothers. He was a young lad. But still, he got thrown into the pit. He got sold into slavery. He got accused of rape. He got thrown back into jail. How many times do you think Joseph said, God, is this because of my, pri- because of my pride? Or is this what you're just refining me and preparing me for? Well, we know how the scripture interprets Joseph's trial. It was God's refinement and preparation. It wasn't because of his arrogance. So you got to be careful. That's where you don't interpret scripture in a vacuum, number one. You interpret it with other believers, number one. Number two, you interpret scripture with scripture. New Testament interprets Old Testament. Galatians interprets Ephesians. Ephesians interprets Deuteronomy. It all is in concert with one another. This is a tough text. That's why I took almost 10 minutes to explain it. Because wrongly interpreted you could feel like God is a mean, just up in heaven looking to smite you. God loves you, and God loves me, and God wants our best. And this guy was doing something atrocious. Let us not forget what this guy was doing. He was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, don't you know your boasting is not good? You not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If Paul doesn't come strong on this... If Paul doesn't come strong on this, what does the rest of the church say? It's fine. This type of behavior, and this is gross immorality. This isn't garden variety sin. Any sin will get you in hell. But there's, Jesus talks about, Proverbs talks about that which the Lord hates. And, I mean, look, a kid struggling with lying is much different than a kid st- uh, killing someone. Or adultery, any sin will get you in hell, but the impact and the consequences, Paul explains that in chapter 6. He says, every other sin is committed outside of your body, but sexual morality is committed in your soul and in your body has a different effect and impact. doesn't mean it gets you to a different layer of hell. It just has different consequences and effects. All sin will lead you to eternal separation. But this type of gross immorality that is unchecked cannot be tolerated. Do you not know that a little leaven, what is a leaven makes, that little bit of yeast makes the flour rise. It's such a small little ingredient, and yet the effect is so, it's, it's amazing to me when that happens with bread, this illustration that Paul uses. And a little bit of sin in this body will leaven. It's got, we've got to confess We've got to be real. That doesn't mean we have to be perfect. We have to be perfectible. We have to deal honestly with one another. I wrote to you in my letter, so this is how we know there was a previous letter. So this is a big tag on why 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and the real 1 Corinthians we don't have. Okay? So and the real 2 Corinthians is 4 Corinthians. There will be a test next week. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, so this is the previous letter that he's referencing that we believe and most scholars believe the majority is 1 Corinthians. 
that we do not have in possession. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Paul needs to qualify that because the church did not understand that. He knows that because of discourse that came back to him. So he unpacks that, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. The people that are like, I'm going to boycott this gas station because they sell pornography. Okay, how far are you going to take that? Really? Every grocery store has things that lead to destruction and death, like tobacco or alcohol in moderation. Okay, some of those things can be okay, but a lot of people abuse those things, so we should, we just going to move out to a farm and just grow everything naturally? Because that's what Paul's saying. I mean, look what he says in verse 11. No, I'm not writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He says, I'm talking about those who name themselves as brothers, as believers, as believers. Let me go back and to unpack this because he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. It's impossible. You couldn't do business. I'm only going to do business with a Christian pest control guy. I'm only going to do business with a Christian insurance man. Okay, maybe that's possible. But then what do you become? This puritanical, judgmental community that's passing judgment on everyone as judge and jury and you're condemning? Paul's like, engage in the affairs of this world. It's impossible. They don't claim the name of brother. What I'm talking about are the people that have gross immorality that is unconfessed in their life. Excuse me. <coughs> he said, if that is the case, there should be no relationship as brothers with them. As brothers with them. But, I, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name Someone that says, I am a believer, I've been baptized, but he is guilty, and he is living in it, it is unconfessed. It's not like David when he was exposed that he wept and he was repentive. He is doing it like this, and we are not to meet with someone. Well, Josh, I thought you said we're to treat them like they're a lost person. We are if they concede that they're lost, but if they're hypocrites, we need to understand that sin in this unconfessed way, makes them look like these hypocrites. And until they deal with that, if, as long as they're saying they're a believer and they're living in a lifestyle of unconfessed sin, we're to treat them like they're unrepentant and we're not even to associate with them. And why? That is to help aid in their restoration. That is to help bring them to repentance. This is what's going on in the church. And we've gone into chapter 6, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So he's like, look, it's not just one guy I want you to think that is falling short. You've got one guy sleeping with his stepmother. You've got the rest of you saying, hey, it's okay. It's no big deal because God's our homeboy. We'll sleep it under the carpet. And then the rest of you, you're not leaving it. You're not checking it. You're not challenging it. And then there's a whole bunch of you that are in this awful conflict with one another. You have lawsuits and all with one another. It's already a defeat. Why not turn the other cheek? Think about what Jesus did when he was wrongly treated. This is the deal. What makes believers different than the world? Not that we're, we will wrong one another, 
We will sin against each other. What makes us different is our response when exposed to that wrong. In the world, it's tit for tat. It's I'll take you to court. I'll sue you. I'll fight you. I'll hate you. I'll never talk to you again. We burn relationships and we fight over, we fight over inheritances and it's embarrassing. And, it's, and that's the world. But when the church begins to look like the world and how it deals with conflict, it's embarrassing. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my children, my beloved, that you love one another. But when we engage in conflict in the same way that the world engages with conflict, what does that say about the church? We're suing one another. We, we deal in cloak and dagger. We don't talk to one another. We get lawyers involved. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Paul is so flabbergasted and grieved, not because he expects them to be perfect, but he expects them to be perfectible. That when there is sin, that it would follow the biblical record. When there is conflict, it would follow the biblical model. When Jesus was sinned against, I mean, he, he addressed Peter directly. He addressed Judas directly. You're going to betray me. It's okay, I'll feed you now. I've just washed your feet. I forgive you. Like, we have this biblical record of, of how, I mean, Paul was there instigating Stephen's death. How could you forgive Paul? How could you forgive Saul that became Paul, a murderer of Stephen? Because that is the ethic. That is the currency of our faith. It is love. It is forgiveness. And Paul is so infuriated. He is fighting mad because you yourselves wrong and defraud. I've been serving in pastoral ministry since 1998. And it always happens because we're humans. It, this conflict within the body, it happens. And it's unfortunate, and I'm not giving it license to happen, it happens because we're not following the biblical record of how to walk in forgiveness. That we have these hurts, habits, and hang-ups for our past, so then it happens again, and all of a sudden, we become judge and jury, and we're like, we forget them, torch the relationship, or we'll gossip it, or we'll go unbiblical about it. We'll get a lawyer involved, or we'll never tell that person, oh, it doesn't matter, he's dead to me, or forget that person, I don't care. Jesus doesn't give that parameter in this context. What did he say about your enemies? Pray for your enemies and bless those that persecute you. He's not even talking about if your brother slaps your cheek, turn and give him the other. If he steals your tunic, give him your cloak. This ethic of forgiveness and love is foreign to us. It's convicting to me because I know I have so much room to grow in how we have conflict. The world, it's funny, when we, when we do surveys in the community, when we talk to people, you know, we're like, hey, what are some roadblocks or inhibitors that are keeping you from coming to a church? We don't even get to trusting in Jesus. They're like, all the people, there's no difference. And I get to sleep in on Sunday and watch my football, and I don't have to deal with 
all the drama. I don't have to deal with church splits and firings and this and that. And if I wanted that, oh, wait, I already have that with my family and my workplace. Why would I go to a church that's supposed to be different? This is challenging to us. This is challenging, and Paul brings it, and he says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. It's there. It's in the text. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's like, this is how you're acting. Don't you know that the unrighteous, you're acting unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Anyone who lives like this in an unconfessed, unrepentant lifestyle, habitual, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what does he say in verse 11? Such were some of you. This is the church. This is the collective you. This is the plural you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. <coughs> Excuse me. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. <coughs> For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's think through this for a second. Such were some of you. Now it's interesting. <laughs> Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. Such were some. Because he doesn't know who's there that day in the public reading. And so he wants it to be a challenge. Look, I don't know everyone's there. I'm not going to be like, oh yeah, you walked down some aisle, you were baptized, you're going to heaven. I don't know your heart. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if the guy that's sleeping with his stepmother is here today during this reading. Such were some of you. And to those of you, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what are you doing? Why are you doing the things that you used to do? Because you're no longer the person that you used to be. You've been sanctified, washed, justified. Come on, don't you know that your body, now this is interesting. This is not singular. This is plural. We teach our kids these verse. We teach our kids this verse. And we're like, hey, don't you know that your body's the temple? <laughs> it's not singular. It's not singular. It's plural. We are being built together as the temple. It's plural. Your body is a temple where God resides whom you have. You are not your own. This does not mean you are not your own individually. Corporately, we are in subject to him. Corporately, we are indwelt by him. Yes, individually as well. But what he's saying is God is building together this church, and he uses the word temple there to invoke Judaism, but also Greek paganism. That is there in Corinth. And he says, the Holy Spirit lives in you, plural. That is not singular. Yes, it lives in me individually, but plural. Why is it plural? Because you're not acting like it. You're suing one another. You're fighting. You're gossiping. You're divisive. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. Stop. Don't you know that your body is a temple that the Spirit of God dwells in corporately? 
This is just a building. We are the church. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That is not singular. We are to be our glory, the glory of God. We are to put him on display. We are to be walking billboards for his greatness. John 17, he said, may the world see my reality through your unity. He said, put me on display to a watching world through your unity. Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. I feel like this is the problem, that we focus on the wrong things. We focus on us. We focus on our desires. We need to focus on the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalm 96, 9, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. If you have your Bible, Micah 7, verse 18 through 20. We have to focus on the Lord. And then as you, for those Bible quizzers that won every time, put your right finger in Micah 7, 20. Put your left finger, whatever, hand, thumb, in Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verse 31. Our God is so great. And when we have a message like this that's so challenging and hard-hitting, it's easy to start focusing on our imperfections and what we have to do. But I'll show you a quote. The battle to be holy is not fought at the level... The battle to be holy is fought at the level of what we love, what we long for, and what we cherish. We have to fuel our passions for God and his greatness and his glory. So I want to focus on these verses that show us his greatness that it would fuel our flame. Because see, sin is just chocolate-covered dog food. Sin may look good on the outside, but it always delivers death and destruction. It never delivers what it promises. And so we need, instead of seeing these things as bad, we need to see God is so great and our passions for that which is temporal will shrink and our passions for that which is eternal will grow. Psalm 104, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. He is great. Micah 7, verse 18 through 20. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. You who have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. How great is our God. Amen? How great is our God. Psalm 104, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. You just read it again. Good. We should read it over and over and over. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. This is something worth getting excited over. Look, we're preaching expositionally through the word of God. The text today that we came across in 1 Corinthians 
There's no happen chance. This is just where we were scheduled to be. And it's, the word of God is always appropriate. It's always good and fitting in season and out. Because this hits every one of us in this room. And the question is, how will we respond as the band comes forward and as we prepare to close? <coughs> the quote I referenced. <clears throat> the battle to be holy, the battle for sanctification is a battle fought at the level of what we love, what we cherish, what we treasure, and what we delight in. If all we do is focus on the wrongs against us, the gossip against us, the sin against us, the immorality, we become bitter and we'll never grow in Christ-likeness. If we fight in our battle in purity, if we fight our battle in sobriety, if we fight our battle in discipline by just knuckle-down, wide approach, this is how I'm going to be victorious. We'll try to do it in the flesh every time. We'll try to do it in our power every time, and it'll never be successful. We'll never be victorious. So I could leave you here today leaving saying, I've got to do this, or I could leave you here thinking, I've got to believe in this. I want to leave you here in a position of belief. Because proper belief will lead to right doing and right action. But if you get the order inverted, if it's doing first, if you're smart enough and good enough and self-controlled enough, you'll pull it off. But if you're like me and the rest of us, you'll fail miserably. So the belief is what? is that God is great, God is wonderful, God is amazing, his grace is real, it's undeserved, and the battle is fought at what, on the level of what we love, what we cherish, and what we delight in. So this morning as we sing and as we respond and go through communion, Pastor Cody is going to facilitate that. I just pray that Pastor Cody, as we think of the body of Christ that's broken and the blood of Christ that was shed, it would be so powerful I was watching the Bible from the History Channel a couple of years ago. I was watching it with Kennedy this week. And we were just thinking that, like, it showed the disciples early on after Christ's ascension. Every time they were getting together, they were just doing communion together. And it was just so powerful. And that's what Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. When you come together, do this. Because his sacrifice, that is what will fuel our love. Lord Jesus, as we prepare for communion, I just pray that we would focus on how great and mighty and wonderful you are. We all have sin. We all have shortcomings. I pray today we would all do business. I pray not one person in this room would leave not doing business with the God, the creator of the universe. <coughs> that from a position of belief, we would say, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you forgive me of my impurities. I believe you forgive me for the infractions of my tongue. I believe you forgive me for my anger, for, for my jealousy, for my enmity. Lord God, I believe you forgive me for my drunkenness. God, I, you believe, uh, you forgive me for my unforgiveness. I repent. Lord Jesus, you know my heart. And as Paul said, that he was the chief of sinners. I echo in his cry that I am a chief of sinners. And before this church, I confess that I fall short. And that communion today is a time for me to be real and to draw near and to say, I believe in the forgiveness of your broken body and your poured out blood that I am secure forevermore and now I want to fight this battle 
as the temple, as the body that is unified on the fault at the level of what I love, what I long for, and what I cherish. And what I love, what I long for, and what I cherish is you. What I cherish is unity with one another in this temple, in this body. What I love and what I long for and what I cherish is your glory and your greatness. I don't cherish my offense. I don't cherish my wrongs. I don't cherish my desires and what I believe I'm entitled to. I die to that. I die to you and I say, Christ, may you increase while I decrease. May that be the cry of every man and woman in this room. May communion be transformational today because you are here in this body, in this temple, and that we would be holy as you are holy. I pray for sin that exists in the heart, that is only you know, God, with each man and woman in this room, that people would do business and confess that before communion. I pray for sin and infractions between one another in this room or out of this room, that as soon as this service is over, that reconciliations would take place that we would none of us take communion in an inappropriate way as Paul admonished us, that we would confess it to you now, and as soon as this service is over, if we need to leave right now, we would go make phone calls, text messages, and say, forgive me. And that we would be right, because that is what you desire. We would be right with one another and unified. Lord God, have your way with us today. May we glorify you in our unity. May we glorify you as the body, as the temple that puts you on display. May it not be through immorality and lawsuits and a little leaven that leavens the whole lump. May it be through brokenness and repentance. We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.